Richard Dawkins, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Tristan. Uh, Richard, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the God Illusion. We are publishing it now in Swedish, um, 15 years since it was first published. And and uh, I want to ask you, I want to go back to, to before you wrote this book. I mean, you had written many books on science before that, and suddenly you go into this this very different topic in, in a way. How did that happen? How did that come about? It's not all that different, Krista. It's, um, I think all my books have always been implicitly atheistic. Mm. Uh, I, and, I, and the atheism that I espouse has always been from a scientific point of view. I always regarded theism as a scientific hypothesis about the nature of the universe and life, albeit an erroneous one. But nevertheless, I do see of it. I see it as an alternative to the scientific worldview, and therefore, it wasn't a great departure for me to write the God Delusion. As to when I wrote it, that was postponed a bit on John Brockman's advice. You know John Brockman, my yeah. literary agent. Um, he, he advised me in the late 1990s, but I originally wanted to write the book, uh, that it was not a good time to do it. Uh, he thinks naturally in terms of an American market first, and he thought he couldn't sell an atheistic book in America at that time. He changed his mind after 9-11, Mm. And during the presidency of George W. Bush, when uh, religion became much more of an obvious threat, and so he he got in touch with me and told me that he thought now was the time to publish the God Delusion. So that was just after nine eleven. You're saying? Well, it was more than just. I mean, it it, it was six years after, but but. Um, uh, it, it was because of 9-11 that jo- John Brockman advised me to change my mind and 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 write the book. Okay, okay, I see what you mean. Uh, no, but of course you're right. I, you could you could you could you could see in your previous books that this was a theme, underlying theme, all the time. And and therefore, I want to ask you: when you decided to write this book, did it come quickly for you? I mean, you had all these thoughts already in your mindset, and you just had to get them down, or did it take time for you? It did take time. I mean, in a way, my thoughts were all there. But of course, as you know, writing any book, Mm. you mess around with orders of chapters and you realize this is the wrong order and you have to change it. And so it does take a lot of organization and a lot of revision. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, can Can you tell us a little bit about how the first reception of the book was? I don't remember in detail uh, what the reviews were like. Um, so no, I don't remember that. It, it, it did sell very well. So I suppose from that point of view, the reception was very, is still selling very well, I have to say. Um, but, um, so, so I suppose that's a good indication of the reception of the book. Yeah, but you know, some sometimes books have a slow start and then they sort of explode, but you, you, yours started to sell at once very well. I suppose it did. I don't remember, Christopher, mm, actually. No. Um, I, I don't remember how, whether it was a slow burner or not. Mm. Um, I, I think it sold pretty well to begin with. Mm. Okay, C- can you tell me about the reactions? I mean, this was sort of a f- the first, almost the first in a series of books on the same theme. But, but how were the reactions? Did you get very hostile reactions at once? Or, or what do you remember from that? 
It was not the first on this theme at that time. Sam Harris's End of Faith was was before it. Yeah. Um, I suppose there were hostile reactions from religious people, which didn't bother me very much. Um, Yes, I think a a lot of reaction was a misunderstanding. A lot of reaction was sort of, well, Dawkins doesn't believe in the kind of God that I don't believe in either sort of thing. And... and, um, I think I wrote a preface to uh, a, a new printing of it, which I hope is in the Swedish edition. Yeah, it is, uh, yeah. Which is about, I'm an atheist, but. Mm. And a whole lot of people said, I got rather used to the idea of people saying, I'm an atheist, but. And then, and then um, so that, that would be worth, worth looking at from yeah. that point of view. Yeah, yeah. I remember I saw quite a few debates you did at that time, and I remember that you were debating also scientists like John Lennox, for example. Uh, uh, there is one debate with him on, on YouTube, and I've, I've actually debated him as well, so that's why I remember it very well. Uh, isn't it weird? I mean, he, he's a mathematician, isn't he? And he's an evangelical Christian. I believe he's a mathematician, yes. I mean, he he's he's in Oxford. I, I don't know anybody who's come across him as a mathematician in Oxford. I suppose he, I suppose he is. <laughs> Um, he um, uh, he he did something I think rather dishonest, which I don't mind disclosing to you. Please do. Um, I had a debate with him in the Oxford University Museum, and um, I wanted to expound what I call the Eddington Concession, and by that I mean the following: Eddington was a famous astronomer yeah. who, um, and physicist who wanted to explain that the second law of thermodynamics was very, very fundamental in physics. And the way he did it was to say, you may mistrust, uh, such, you may mistrust Maxwell's equations, but so much the worse for Maxwell's equations. You may mistrust uh, experimental data, but so much the worse for experimentalists. But if you don't believe in the second law of thermodynamics, then I can offer you no hope. There's nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. (laughs) Now, that I call the Eddington concession. You bend over backwards to concede something, which, of course, he wasn't conceding that there was anything wrong with Maxwell's equations. He wasn't really conceding that, that physics experiments should be mistrusted. But he was saying, compared with the second law of thermodynamics, um... It's a different order. And I wanted to say that's called the Eddington Concession. And I used the Eddington Concession at the beginning of the John Lennox debate because I had had a previous debate with him on radio mm-hmm. when I had extracted from him an admission that he believes in the most naive miracles like um, turning water into wine and walking on water, things like that, yeah. which, which no sophisticated theologian actually believes in. And so I said something like, using the Eddington concession now, I could imagine just about being being convinced by an argument that there must be a God, a sort of physicist, physicist God, a kind of deist God who set up the universe and then stood back and did nothing. But compared with the God that John Lennox believes in, who walks on water and turns water into wine, do you see the con- the connection? Yes, there? of course. I was using the Eddington concession, and John Lennox pretended later 
not on the spot, but later he pretended that I was actually admitting a deist God. Oh, yeah. Okay, but because I said, you know, compared with believing in water into wine, the deist God is is not t- totally ridiculous. That's what I, I was implying. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of days later, he did another lecture in um, in Scot- in Scotland. And I happened to have a friend in Scotland who attended his lecture. And she took detailed notes. This was in Inverness. She took detailed notes in which he said, Dawkins is coming round. Dawkins is becoming, his, you know, this was a deeply dishonest maneuver on, on his part. And he's never really apologized for that. So I don't like debating with him anymore. <laughs> I certainly understand that. I, I think there's always been a, a trend that religious people want to sort of kidnap scientists and say oh, they, yes. are, they are religious. Like Einstein, I mean, for example. Einstein, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Einstein, unfortunately, was very indiscreet in his language. He was always using the word God in his language, by which yeah. he simply meant, you know, the, the the wonderful things about the universe which we don't yet understand. Exactly. Um, and and um, religious people like to jump on that and say, oh, Einstein was religious. And of course yeah. he wasn't. No, he wasn't. And you, you can see it very clearly from his letters, actually. That's where it really shows that he, yes. he really did not like religious religion at all. And he didn't like to be called religious. So, But, but a lot of religious people want to have these scientists to hold up, I think, <laughs> and yes. show off. Well, he did call himself religious from time to time, but, but by that he meant spiritual, yeah. a kind of... Um, just sort of bowled over with wonder at the, at the beauty of the universe. That's what he meant. Yeah. And, and yeah. they take it to mean believing in a supernatural God, which he was absolutely adamant he did not believe in. That's so true. I must ask you what, what's always asked to an author a couple of years after a book was published. Have you changed your mind about anything in the God illusion? <laughs> no. <laughs> you haven't? <laughs> Not no. even the slightest thing. <laughs> well, I haven't read it lately, but but I, I don't think so. I mean, there, there, there may be the odd factual error about something, you oh, know, yeah. some, some matter of history or something, but 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 not not in fundamentals, no. No, no, no. Okay. Which I is see. a pity because you know scientists like changing their minds. It, 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 it's a good thing for a scientist to do, unlike a politician. Yeah, <laughs> unlike a politician. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Anyway, if uh, we're going to talk more about that book, but I just want to mention that you quite recently published also Gr- uh, Outgrowing God is the English title, right? Yes. The Swedish is Heido Gud. And um, uh, as I understand it, it's written for younger people, but you have the same idea as The God Illusion, or? Yes, very much so. It, it's a kind of young person's version of The God Illusion, um, it has a bit more, well, a, about half of Outgrowing God is actually about evolution. Mm. Uh, but uh, but a- apart from that, yes, you can think of it as a kind of junior version of the God delusion. Uh, and, and the reason you wrote it, I understand, is to reach out to younger people, basically. Yes, or- the original plan was to actually write a much younger book for, for you know, for a, p- a picture book for, mm. uh, for um, real, really young children. And that proved difficult to sell to publishers. They didn't want uh, a, a book for children. Um, and so um, the publishers who eventually decided to publish it kept on pushing me to push the book to more to, to an older age group. And mm-hmm. kind of, so it kind of ended up as a sort of teenage book. 
uh, well, sort of 12 upwards kind of book, as opposed to for young children. What kind of reactions have you got on that book? Um, pretty good. I mean, it's it's not a major bestseller like The God Delusion, but it's still selling well. I mean, are you getting reactions from schools or get emails from young people? Yes, from time to time. It's it's not um, a, a school textbook. I mean, it's not it's not been it's not been adopted as a as, mm -hmm. a, as a textbook for uh, for schools. Which the God Delusion has actually a little bit with with uh, religious studies. I've been quite encouraged by that. I sometimes get letters from teachers of religious what they call religious studies or religious education. Yeah. Um, who who use it. it? It wasn't designed for that. There's also one hotel. Um, somewhere in the north of England, in the Lake District, actually, which has replaced the Gideon Bible with <laughs> God Delusion in the hotel, in, in each um, hotel bedroom. That's wonderful. That's yes. really wonderful. I can I can tell you, I don't think I ever told you this, that like 12, 13 years ago, I made a little campaign in Sweden because we also have the Gideon Bibles in all the hotels, you know. And yes. in the in the Scandic uh, hotel uh, group, uh, 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 they actually decided to remove the Gideon Bible and instead have a little library in the reception with the Quran, with the, the Torah, and with the Bible and so on. And the Swedish <laughs> Church protested strongly against this and said that we will uh, take take away all our bookings of your hotel until you put it back. So they 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 put it back. They didn't dare to take it away. <laughs> that's real blackmail, isn't it? I mean, that's <laughs> yes, that, it that is. is shocking. That's shocking. <laughs> yes, and I, I I wrote an article in a Swedish paper saying that the church is doing what they always done. They before they threatened with a with the anger of God, and now they threaten with, with economic repression instead. So, <laughs> same style, <clears throat> which is quite uh, interesting. Anyway, um, uh, The God Illusion, uh, as you know, it has been also unofficially translated to Arabic uh, uh, and published as a PDF on the internet. And as I understand it, it's been downloaded like 15 million times or something like that. It's an amazing, yes, I, I, it's wonderful. And it's a friend of yours who did it, isn't it? Well, it's someone at least who lives in Sweden, yes. Uh, yes. I think you met him once. Uh, yes, I think true. I met him at your house. That's true, yeah. And well, uh, have you heard any, I mean, have you got any reactions on from the Arabic world? Oh, yes. Um, this has, this um, project, which you know about, um, the, the, the PDF, which, which he downloaded, yeah. Sorry, which he uploaded and which has been downloaded that so many million times. Um, that gave rise to a new idea, which my foundation, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science in America, uh, took up, which is th what we call the translation project, ah. in which uh, we um, pay people, uh, pay tra professional translators and revisers to translate my books and we hope other people's books later into not just Arabic, but all four major languages of the Islamic world. So that's Arabic, Urdu, Indonesian, and Persian, Farsi. Um, and that's now going very well. Uh, and so it was the, um, the inspiration of the original Arabic uh, tra translation, which you, you know about, Fantastic. which led us to 
do that. And so that's a very successful, these PDFs of a free download. So um, I did get no, no royalties from that. Um, but of course, I'm delighted to have the, the word spread in the Islamic world. Hmm. Do, do you get emails from people in that part of the world as well? Yes, I do. Um, from from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia, from uh, from Iran, um, and um, what they all say is that the undercurrent of atheism in these Islamic countries is much stronger than you would guess, and be mm. because of course they have to be secret, they have to be clandestine, and uh, so I I'm, I take great encouragement from these letters that I get from those countries. Mm. Yeah, it's really it's really fantastic. I, I can tell you a story about that. I I I used to go to a what you call it hair cutter here in where I live, uh, and he is from Iraq. And he told me one day he knows I'm a publisher of these books. He told me that he had downloaded your Arabic version of of, of this oh. book and read it. And he said it's so fascinating, so inspiring. But I don't dare to tell my wife I'm reading it. He said. <laughs> Gosh, that's a very revealing story, Krista. It is. It is. Um, yes. Good. So, so it it certainly has effect. Effect. I mean, it it affects these people, which is which is very very good. I think. Um, uh, okay. So tell me. I guess you're following the sort of scientific trends right now. I I want to check if you agree with me. On this, I get the feeling that there is some kind of how to explain this religious urge in 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 some scientific fields like consciousness, for example, where there is a lot of ideas trending, like panpsychism, for example. Uh, you know that consciousness is a part of matter, uh, or like um, uh, what's his name now, uh, Donald Hoffman, a cognitive scientist, who says that. Uh, the world is 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 materialized in consciousness. Consciousness is the fundamental uh, um, quality of reality, and so on. And when I hear all these things, I get a feeling that it's some kind of religious uh, religious urge behind these ideas. Do you, do you understand what I mean? It's yes. I mean, it's absolute bollocks, of course. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but the interesting things, it's trending among people who consider themselves non-religious. Yes. I mean, consciousness is something that arises from the extreme complexity of nervous systems. And, yeah. and it's one of the great wonders of the brain that they have become conscious. And the, the idea that consciousness somehow inheres in matter just because it is in, is in brains, that, that I mean some some mystical mystically inclined people even say that electrons are conscious mm. and, and of course that simply dilutes the idea of consciousness to nothing it's it simply means that, that you know they're not using the word consciousness in any kind of sensible way at all but why do you think this is happening right now because it is trending i mean i see it everywhere well consciousness is deeply mysterious we don't understand it uh, but to try to 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 imply that therefore everything is conscious, the universe is conscious, electrons are conscious, atoms are conscious. It's just evading the problem, it's ducking the problem. It's a difficult problem, it needs solving, but that's not the way to solve it. No, no, I, I completely agree with you. I just find it fascinating that it seems like 
uh, even, you know, good scientists seems to be uh, fascinated by these kinds of ideas. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of books coming out right now, uh, tending to that, to those ideas. Well, I would cross-question them and say exactly what it is they do believe. Ask them exactly what it is they, they do believe. Yeah, because I, I always get the feeling that the, the pan-Sikhism idea does, doesn't even have any explanatory power. It doesn't explain anything. Certainly not, no. So, so um, okay, but, but tell me, um, I want to stay with the consciousness a little bit. Uh, what do you think about these ideas now with... Uh, psychedelics that psychedelics could teach us something about consciousness you know well, sam harris is dealing with that yeah, yes i i i don't feel qualified to answer that until i've actually taken a psychedelic drug which i haven't um <laughs> and, you plan to um, do that well, i kind of feel what uh, i feel uh, a, 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 a amateur um what I mean, I, I've read some people who have, and I'm kind of impressed with the experiences that they have had um, from Aldous Huxley on. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I have occasionally been tempted. I, I have a friend who, from time to time, offers to uh, mentor me through an LSD trip. She said she would take a half dose in order to make sure I didn't jump out of the window or anything like that. Um, <laughs> Good. But... <laughs> um, I haven't yet taken her up on it. Uh, I, I had a cousin, a, a cousin of my father, actually, who was a great authority on this uh-huh. in California. Um, he, I think he actually introduced Aldous Huxley to some of these drugs. So I wrote to him and asked him for his advice, and he actually advised me not to take psychedelic drugs. Um, he said the danger of a bad trip is too great. Um, so I haven't done it. Um, I... I'm open-minded enough to to believe that it's possible that it might um, have some kind of enlightening effect. I did d- go to Canada once to um, Michael Persinger's lab. This is not a drug we're talking about now, but this is a, a he, he puts a, a modified motorcycle helmet on his his subject who sits in a totally dark room, mm. and then he uh, passes magnetic field through the brain. And um, about 80% of subjects get some kind of mystical experience from this. And meanwhile, he monitors the EEG rhythms. And I went, uh, the BBC took me there to do a sort of documentary on this. And um, so they were recording my impressions of this. 20% of people are not affected by it. And unfortunately, it turned out that I was one of the 20%. So I, Uh I did not have a mystical experience. I was looking forward to it but it didn't happen. They had a control in the experiment, a single control, which was one local vicar who who went into the dark room immediately after me. And he, like me, said that it had no effect. However, when Michael Persinger looked at his EEG rhythms, they were the EEG rhythms of a absolute straight down the line susceptible subject one of the not run not just 80 percent but right you know major susceptible and michael persinger believes that this vicar was actually lying and he didn't want to admit that these <laughs> magnetic waves um had 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 um any effect on him but his eeg rhythms suggested that he certainly did have a response 
<laughs> That's a wonderful story. I, I get it, I'm getting curious. Who is this cousin of your father who is an authority? Oh, he's recently died at a very advanced age. His, his name was John Smithies, J.R. Smithies, S-M-Y-T-H-I-E-S. Uh, and he was a psychiatrist, I think quite a distinguished psychiatrist, who moved to California uh, and um, experimented himself with psychedelic drugs long before it became trendy, long before it became fashionable. And uh, he did know Aldous Huxley, and I think um, he had introduced him to one of these drugs. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, I, you mentioned LSD. I mean, my suggestion would be that if you want to try something, try psilocybin, these magic mushrooms, because it's not as hallucinatory. Uh, I think, as LSD. I never tried LSD, actually, but I think that's much stronger. So if you want to try for the first time, go for yes. psilocybin. But well, you should. Well, go for the, for the full experience, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm not in any immediate hurry to try try anything anyway. <laughs> well, well, but no, but seriously, I, th I think it's interesting and fascinating that the reports on clinical use are so positive. I mean, treating uh, depression and treating, treating anxiety and so on. It seems to be very, very good results. Have you heard about it? Wh which drug is that? Psilocybin. The mag I see. Okay. Yeah, okay. No, I haven't heard about that. Um, they're do they are doing a big study in Sweden now at Karolinska Institute, uh, which is present going to be presented this autumn. But I know from international studies that it's very very positive, and it's okay. been so it's been so sort of stigmatized to do that before because it's considered a drug. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So it's interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. And another thing I wanted to ask you. Um, which is I find quite depressing is that, I mean, you know of all these conspiracy theories that is around now in the world, QAnon conspiracies and, you know, weird ideas about vaccine and microchips and, you know, all these things. And to me, it seems like uh, pre uh, presenting evidence or having re reasonable conversations, it doesn't help. People believe the weirdest things you can imagine still. What do you think about that? Do you get depressed from it? Yes, I, it, it's in a way praiseworthy that people are skeptical. And so in, in a way, um, being skeptical of received wisdom and going for mad conspiracy theories has got a, a certain virtue to it. The trouble is that it's all very well being skeptical, but but the the gold standard is evidence. And so they don't seem to care about evidence. It's as no. though they take skepticism to a ridiculous extent. But what you should be doing is by all means be skeptical of something that you hear, but then ask yourself, ask the, anybody else, what is the evidence? Look for the evidence. And in the case of um, most of these conspiracy theories, uh, there's no evidence for it. They just hear it blowing through the internet and say, oh, that sounds interesting. I believe that. That feels right to me. Feelings are not important. Nobody should care. Feelings just doesn't don't matter. What mm. matters is evidence. And so um, always look for evidence. And that, of course, is what science is all about. Mm. So it, it is reasonable to be skeptical of some authority who's spouting off, even if he calls himself a scientist. But then what you should do is look at the evidence. Look at 
look at um, the published evidence. Mm-hmm. Yes. And to me, it seems like this is just getting worse all the time. I mean, so many people are getting so engaged in these conspiracy theories and it's it's even breaking up families, it seems. So wh- what what kind of psychological mechanisms do you think is behind this? I mean, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, why are we so bad at judging uh, uh, things? Uh, dis- yeah. Why do we believe these things? I- I, I don't have an explanation for any recent trend. I mean, I, I, I think trends, fashionable trends are interesting uh, from an evolutionary point of view. And um, so whether it's a fashion for a particular type of clothes or hairstyle or, mm. or something like that. Um, and so if there is a fashion for believing in wildly ridiculous theories, um, then uh, maybe you gain social prestige you know, I'm I'm even more credulous than you are, <laughs> more gullible than thou, kind of one-upmanship. Yeah, um, but there's not a very good explanation that I can think of. No, the, 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 these conspiracy theories has really turned into memes that are spreading very fast. Yes, I, I'm thinking that this is true in America, but is Sweden similarly infected? Oh yes, I mean the QAnon conspiracy movement is growing in Sweden rapidly right now. So you mean people believe um, Biden stole the election from Trump and that kind of thing? Some people do. I mean, of course, it's not it's not a a, a big group in Sweden, but I mean we had. Just two weeks ago, there was this big demonstration with hundreds of people out on the streets in Stockholm believing that. Yes. Yeah, that is depressing. It it is depressing. And they they believe that uh, the corona pandemic is a a fake and they believe that the vaccines will also inject a microchip so we will be controlled by some kind of secret global elite or whatever. I mean, completely nutcase theories. From a mimetic point of view, it's actually very interesting. I mean, the, 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 the nutcase memes do seem to have an appeal. Um, and maybe they're the, it's the historical um, legacy from earlier things, witch, witch hunts and um, witch burnings and things like which were similarly epidemics of nonsensical ideas that that had a kind of infectious property that people could catch them from each other yeah and i'm i'm also thinking this is just a amateur idea of course but i'm thinking that could it have something to do with the fact that some people feel that they don't matter they don't matter to anyone and they don't have a uh, they, they have a lack of meaning in their lives. And then they find something that is sort of bigger than themselves, uh, a mission, and they they come together in groups with people who likes them or loves them in this group, of course. And that creates meaning and that makes them matter. Could it be something like that? That's interesting, yes. Uh, and I suppose the internet has kind of made that possible. Yes. I mean, maybe people always felt they didn't have any meaning but before the internet came along, there was nothing they could do about it. Now they can go on Twitter and Facebook and and, and recruit a, a group of similar lunatics from around the world um, and and get together with them and kind of have a little mutual 
party of people with similar ridiculous views yeah makes them feel good that sounds plausible to me yes yeah well previously when people just lived in physical villages and towns you didn't meet any other anybody else who had the same ridiculous views as you did and so there was no reinforcement no no exact that, uh, yeah that's 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 really that's an effect of the internet that's a bad side effect of the internet without doubt okay so let, the internet let, now now makes kind of villages of of people who are not geographically located together but they're mentally located together having having the same degree of stupidity um exactly. but located in different parts of the world yeah exactly I must tell you about when we speak about memes. I don't know if you are aware of that, but the 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 concept meme, the word meme, is actually used by kids in internet relations. My my eleven year old son talks about memes all the time, and to him, a meme is a little video clip that he creates and he spreads it, and he wants to get as many likes as possible for that little clip. Yes. Uh, and he has well, no that, idea that, it comes from you. <laughs> that, that, that's a subset. That that to to the extent that that the aim is to get lots of clicks. Yeah. I mean that 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 does make it a meme, but it's only a very very small part of what constitutes a meme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. A, a little bit more. I'd like to talk to you about evolution. Actually, I mean, you you've been working. <clears throat> on evolution science for for many many years is there any is are there any discoveries in 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 the research of evolution recent years that have surprised you have you do you see what i mean have you learned something new from the science of evolution that you didn't know before when you started yes uh what what's new i suppose is molecular genetics Mm. where um the the kind of um uh, abilities that in darwin's time methods of available in in darwin's time for working out pedigrees working out relationships between animals have now been vastly improved and increased by molecular genetics and so whereas darwin could note homologies in skeletons for example and note that um the um tetrapod hand mammalian hand with the vertebrate hand um uh can be compared in bats and whales and and um lungfish and and humans etc um mm. nowadays that kind of thing can be done in massively greater detail at the molecular level and that has thrown up some genuine surprises um it's not so new nowadays but the biggest surprise to me was discovering that hippos hippopotamuses mm-hmm. um are closely related to whales mm-hmm. whales um spring from right in the middle of the cloven hoofed animals so it's not that they're off to one side of the cloven hoofed animals they're right in the middle of the cloven hoofed animals they belong with hippos more closely than any others and so Wow. Um they don't of course have hooves at all but nevertheless taxonomically speaking whales are cloven-hoofed animals related strongly to hippos. That's an amazing finding yeah. and it illustrates the power of um molecular genetics to change minds. It also illustrates the power of selection 
to seize upon a lineage like Wales. And once they get into a different medium from land into total dependence on sea, they're then freed up to totally change everything about them so that there's nothing about a whale that looks at all like a hippo. But because it's been, uh, the, the, the buoyancy of water frees it up from the tyranny of gravity on land. Mm. Um, it, it can become large, a totally different shape, become streamlined. Everything about it changes just surprisingly rapidly. Uh, so I suppose that would be one that would be one big example of mm. a change that's come about um, during those decades you referred to. Yeah, extremely fascinating. I didn't know about that. Do do we understand how the process actually the graduate graduate process of of going into the water how that happened? Well, yes. I mean, there are fossils, and and so there are intermediates which we, which we find in the fossil record where where um, animals still had legs that they walked with, and doubtless they went some of the time into the water like modern seals and sea lions do, uh, and they finally emancipated themselves from the land altogether. And then, so they lost their hind limbs altogether, except for tiny vestigial bones buried deep in the body. And uh, the front limbs became flippers, which in some cases are extremely large. So yes, the intermediates in the fossil record are all there. And the driving force, as always, of course, was natural selection. Hmm. Extremely fascinating. Um Okay, I want to end with a question of a more of a personal kind. What I mean, in all your work and all your everything you do, what makes you feel the most alive? What what is what is uh, giving you the most satisfaction in in your in your work and life? Science and uh, the. Um, the amazing fact of our existence, which is amazing enough, but the the even more amazing fact that we can understand it. And uh, it's something that was not possible in earlier centuries, before about the 19th century. And it's an astonishing thing to me that the prodigious complexity of living beings such as ourselves exists and has given rise to brains which are capable of understanding it, understanding where it came from, and well on the way to understanding, if not everything about it, a great deal about it. Hmm. That's wonderful. Okay, Richard Dawkins, thank you so much for uh, coming to our podcast. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>